Good morning, Southfield. Go ahead and stand. Let's sing.
Well, good to see you. My name is Dennis, but honestly, my favorite name is Dad. I love being called Dad by my kids. It's been one of my favorite roles in life. I found it incredibly ironic this morning. Our team was practicing up here, and John Beaker was practicing, kind of playing along on the bass and having some fun. And I looked up, and, and the way John, John's wearing this shirt this morning, and he's wearing a T-shirt, and T-shirt's right here. And so I do this quick glance, and it, honestly, it looked like he was dressed like a priest. And, and I'm, I'm looking, I'm, I was, it was hilarious. I'm like, oh, Father John on Father's Day. Great, that worked. That worked well. So that was kind of fun. But glad you came this morning. On the inside of your folder today, you'll find a card. We'd love for you to go ahead and fill that out. Put your name on it at least. Maybe a way to contact you. We always like to keep that information uh, fresh and refreshed, especially emails. Those tend to shift a lot along the way. On the back side, there's a place to put your kids' information. That's important right now. We're in the middle of uh, changing our church uh, management system that we've been using for a while. And so in the process of doing some updating, it would be good to make sure that we have the best possible information uh, for signing signing in your kids as well. And then if this is your first time today, we, we want to welcome you today. If you'll go ahead and uh, give us your address, what we'd like to do is send you something in the, ma- in the mail this week to just say, thanks for coming. We promise you we're not going to come knock on your door with banana bread or anything like that. We'll leave you alone, but uh, we'd love to go ahead and just send you something to say thanks. And then on the way out, there's a table. Uh, it has donuts on it right now, so if you're really fortunate, you might grab one before you leave. But um, there's some Bibles there. The kind of Bible that we use around here is called New Living Translation, and it's basically an American English Bible. It's easier to understand. So you're not having to fight through kind of ancient languages in order to figure out what the Bible has to say. So we'd love for you to go ahead and take one of those today. We learned a new song last week, put it on Facebook for you to be able to practice. And so I know that all week long you were driving along, looking at your cell phone, singing. No, you're not supposed to do that. But anyway, you were learning the song. You got it down now. You got it mastered. You're good to go. If you haven't figured it out, this is a great time to just go ahead and take a restroom break and No, don't do that because the whole room's going to leave. So let's go ahead and stand and sing this song. This is my revelation, Christ Jesus crucified. Salvation through repentance at the cross on which he died. Now hear my absolution, forgiveness for my sin. And I sink beneath the waters that Christ was buried in.
ahead and be seated. And as you're seated, go ahead and turn to your neighbor and tell them um, what comes to your mind when you hear the word boot camp. So when I say the word boot camp, a couple of contexts come to your mind. One would be military, right? You got that whole military initiation, this drill sergeant screaming in your ear. And the other image is being at a gym, being at a, a fitness center, or being at a church warehouse where there's somebody up front screaming out commands. Bob Coyne. I love this because Bob has tortured us for years. And I'm telling you what, right now, he is sweating more than the cumulative sweat of three years of boot camping. It's fun to have you up here today. So we're going to learn how well Bob can spell. And he's really not liking this at all right now. <laughs> spell checker, exactly. So here's what I want to do. If you've been in a military boot camp, just raise your hand. You've been in a military boot camp at some point, okay? How about you've been in the opposite town? You've been in a physical fitness, uh, a fitness center or a church. You've done boot camp that way. All right. So here's what we're going to do. I'd like to start with the military guys and ladies and ask you to shout out some words that define your boot camp experience. But here's what you got to really think through, okay? There are words you muttered under your breath to your drill sergeant. Those are not appropriate ever, but especially in church. You know, fire from heaven. We're talking about Elijah. So none of those words, just the good words. All right. So anybody got some? Military people. Give us some words that tell you what boot camp's all about. Discipline. D-D-D-I-S-C-I-P-L-I-N-E. <laughs> all right. Next. Thanks, Lorraine. How about hard? There we go. What else? Got another one? Military people. Structure starts with an S. All right. Got another one? Training. Okay. Others? Okay. <laughs> just, just put an I. <laughs> just put an I. <laughs> Got any others? What's that? Endless. Endless. It goes on and on and on. All right, so what we'll do now is we'll, we'll add the physical, uh, the, the fitness people, the warehouse people. You go ahead and give us some of yours, too. And again, remember, Bob's up here, and he's leading this again next winter in our new place. It's going to be fun to sweat in a new place, but he'll remember this day. So go ahead. What else do you got? Exhausting. Exhausting. Yeah, I'd, I'd get that one wrong, too. Don't worry. What else? Pain. Pain. <laughs> We got stereo pain there. That was pretty cool, man. What else? Okay. Yeah, yet another I word. <laughs> just, just an I is good, we know. <laughs> what else? Challenging. Very good. That's a pretty good list. And, and we will now that Bob's getting his last word in there, say thank you to him. Let's go ahead. You did a great job. I'll never do it again until next time, okay? Yeah, welcome to boot camp. This yeah, time. I can't wait. That'll be fun. That'll be a lot of fun. Oh, my word, am I in trouble. So anyway, when I think of boot camp, there are a few words that come to my mind, both the military and the physical, okay? Both sides. Words like um, intense. It's an intense season. It's not, it's not normal. You don't do boot camps all the time. They're intense seasons. Uh, if it's the military version in particular, it can be lonely. A piece of it is 
isolation, getting you on your own, getting you inside of your head and then back out of your head and all that kind of stuff. So it can be intense. It can be lonely. And I think of the word breaking point. The whole idea is to bring you to the edge and break you. Break you, why? So that they can remake you, so that they can make you into something that you weren't before. Uh, hopefully by the time you're done with the boot camp, you are changed. You are radically changed. You walk away a different person than when you walked in the room or walked onto the field. Well, today I want to add a third boot camp, and that would be a, a spiritual boot camp. Or, or a character camp, we might call it. God takes us through these seasons. They're not, they're not endless, though they may feel endless. He takes us through these seasons of just intense training, intense growth, uh, lonely seasons sometimes, where we, where we find ourselves just saying, am I the only one left? Am, am I it? And there are seasons that do take us to the breaking point because God has some remaking that he wants to do in our lives. 1 Kings 17.2, Elijah is about to enter into a spiritual boot camp. We started looking at Elijah last week, and we're just we're looking at this character throughout the entire summer, learning more about who he is and, and how God made him and, and, and what he's all about. He is about to endure three intense years of, of isolation that are breaking him down in order to build him into who God desires. In chapter 17, he's introduced to us as Elijah from Tishbite. By the end of the chapter, verse 24, 24 verses later, he goes from being known as Elijah the Tishbite to Elijah the man of God. And in the middle verses, we see a boot camp that crafts him and molds him into who God desires, a spiritual boot camp. And what we're going to see today is that God takes a lot of us through the exact same moves as he is training and making us into who uh, Jesus wants us to be So and being more like Jesus. So we started this last week. You can catch the podcast if you want to keep caught up. Um, one thing we pointed out when we started is that we really know very little about Elijah's life prior to him coming on the scene. There is no background given. 17, one happens and boom, there he is. No real introduction. He comes from an obscure town named Tishbe. And we know that his, that his name, his name is a message. Here he's the man that's coming up against the prophet Baal. He's asking the people, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve Baal or are you going to serve Jehovah? And ironically, his name means my God is Jehovah. So he's leaving no question. Even in his name, he's making a declaration. I'm serving the living God. Who are you going to serve? We know that by this point, Israel is just, it's desperately wicked. If you were to turn back one chapter, go back to chapter 16, we learn a few things there. It says, Ahab, son of Omri, did that which was evil in the Lord's sight, even more evil than every king before him. It's not just that he's wicked. He's more wicked than everyone that came before him. I mean, he's just, he's taking it down. And, and the comparison continues. It says, as though it were not enough to follow the example of Jeroboam. So Jeroboam's the, the first king of Israel, the divided nation. And he's wicked. He married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal of the Sidonites. And, and he began to bow down in worship to Baal. Now, again, Jeroboam's the first king of Israel, and we talked about this last week. He's feeling threatened. If the people go back and worship in Jerusalem, they might turn their allegiance back to the other king. And so he says instead, I'm going to set up new centers of worship. I'm going to put one in Dan and one in Bethel in the kingdom of the north. And we're not going to worship Jehovah anymore. We're going to worship golden calves. And he tells them, these are the objects. These are the idols. These are the gods that brought you out of Egypt. That's who he wants them to worship. Jeroboam's evil. He's bad news. And the Bible says Ahab takes evil to a whole new level. I mean, he really takes it down. So, so what did he do? Well, the, the passage tells us first, he married a foreign wife. He married Jezebel. This was a marriage that was probably arranged by his father, Omri, to broker an alliance with the king of Sidon. And that area is kind of, it's modern Lebanon now. So the nation just to the north of Israel. Now, God's law is very clear about marital alliances with foreign wives. It's not that he didn't like foreigners. Here's what he knew. A foreign wife would bring a foreign god. 
And before you know it, you were not only in love with the woman, you were in love with the woman's God. You were in love with the woman's pagan practices. And so he wanted them to remain with people who were in love with Jehovah and Jehovah alone. So here he is, just like Solomon and others, turns to foreign wives. And before you know it, he's turning to foreign gods as well and unthinkable pagan practices. His heart not only turned toward this pagan woman, it turns toward this pagan deity, Baal. And you've heard the word Baal many times. Baal is the, the male god of fertility for the Canaanites. He's in charge of rain and abundance of crops. He's the, the primary male god of the Canaanite nation. And, then, and the worship of him centers around Sidon, ironically, Jezebel's home, where she came from. Worship of this god, get this, included infant sacrifices and cannibalism. I mean, can you imagine going from worshiping Jehovah to we're going to kill our babies and we're going to eat people? And this is going to be part of worship. This is what worship is going to look like now. He's represented by the sun, the male god of fertility. He uh, has a wife. Her name is Asherah. They give birth to about 70 gods who make up a, a pantheon of just depraved worship, just absolutely depraved worship. So along with worshiping Baal, they start setting up Asherah poles. Our equivalent might be something that would look like a totem pole, if you get that idea. Okay, So they work, work, set up these poles, and the poles are devoted to Asherah. She's the, the female goddess of fertility. She's worshipped through prostitution, and she's represented by the moon. So we have Baal represented by the sun, Asherah represented by the moon, and uh, church is pretty disgusting between, you know, sacrificing babies and prostitution and everything else. Uh, it's just an absolutely horrible way of worshiping. This is, this is the God who Ahab tells the nation, this is who we're choosing from here forward. Forget Jehovah. Forget, forget the one who brought us through the, through the Red Sea. Forget all that. Forget, forget the manna from the sky. Forget all that. We're going to worship somebody who wants us to kill our babies and who wants us to eat people, and who wants us to do temple prostitution. That's who we're going to worship from here forward. There's one other thing I want you to see before we turn the page, and that's verse 34. Now, as you're reading through this passage, you come to this verse and you go, man, this just feels random. Boom, where did this come from? It says it was during his reign, during Ahab's reign, that Hiel, a man from Bethel, rebuilt Jericho. So Jericho is a city down to the south. Remember, it's the one that the Israelites had to conquer in order to get into the land. They march around it. The walls fall. It's just an absolute miracle. It's amazing. It says uh, that he, he rebuilt Jericho. When he laid its foundations, it cost him the life of his oldest son, Abiram. And when he completed it and set up its gate, it cost him the life of his youngest son, Segub. This all happened according to the message from the Lord concerning Jericho, spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now, again, this may seem random at first. You're like, wait a second, we're talking about Ahab, and all of a sudden we're shifting off to Jericho. What's going on here? Remember that when Jericho was destroyed, Joshua invoked a curse on the city. We'll go back and look at it in Joshua 6. See if this doesn't sound familiar. May the curse of the Lord fall on anyone who tries to rebuild the town of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. Now, Hillel is not, he's not just randomly deciding to build this city. It is quite likely that Ahab has commissioned him to do so. Jericho is located in a spot that if that fortified city is working well, it protects them from attack by Moab. And so he wants that city rebuilt. And it costs this man two children in the process of rebuilding it. Why does the writer put this in here now? He puts it in to show us just how absolutely wicked Ahab was. He's just ignoring everything God's ever said. If God placed, uh, said there was going to be a blessing for something, so what? If God said there was going to be a curse for something, so what? He's ignoring God at every turn. He's ignoring God's warnings. And his rebellion cost hell two sons, just as God predicted. Ahab had complete and total disregard for God and for God's word. This is the political and spiritual climate of Israel when Elijah comes on the scene. Now, last week we looked at, at verse 1, just verse 1 of the passage. 
It tells us where Ahab, or where, where Elijah was from. He's from Tishba in the land of Gilead. And then he goes and talks to the king. Most likely comes to the palace. There at the palace court, he makes this declaration. As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve. Remember, his name means my Lord, my God is Jehovah. The God I serve. There will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Elijah the prophet prayed for what God had promised in Deuteronomy chapter 28. God said, if you abandon me, I'll abandon you. If you abandon me, I'll turn off the water. I'm just going to turn off the sky, not just as the punishment, but as a wake-up call. As a wake-up call to say, come back to me. Come on, don't, don't just wander away. So Elijah prays this prayer. And catch what he did here. This is really important. What did we just say about Baal? Baal's the, the God of the sun. He's the God of, the, of fertility. He's the God who's in charge of, in Canaanite worship, rain and crops. This is a direct assault on Baal. I mean, he's just outright saying, we're going to find out right here, right now, who's got more power. Is it Jehovah God of heaven who can turn off the spigot? Or is that stone you're worshiping over there through killing babies and through prostitution? What's it going to be? How is this going to work? And we see this time and time again. We saw it in Egypt. When, when the plagues come, it's not as if God just goes, what can I do to these people? Hmm, I know, flies. Let's try that. It's not the way it worked. Every one of the plagues was a direct assault on one of the entities that Egypt worshipped. The same is true here. So Elijah makes a prediction and prays this prayer. And he prays it without any knowledge that we can see that God is going to help him out during the drought. You see, when he prays this prayer, the drought's going to happen to him too. The water's going to turn off for him too. The food's going to stop for him too in his mind. And this is important for us to hear and important for us to understand. Elijah, this man of God, and many godless people have endured seasons of pain brought on by their own prayers. Here he's praying for this. He's praying, bring a drought. And it was going to impact him too. And there are times that we pray prayers. We pray for ourselves, for our family, for our nation. And we pray those prayers. And those prayers impact us as well. They They have an impact. They come back on us. Elijah was willing to endure this season of desperation in order that God might once again get the attention of his people. Now, I highlight this because we often pray prayers, strong prayers, but we qualify them. We qualify them for our comfort. We qualify them for the sake of someone we love. We kind of, we kind of take the edge off it. It's like the guy who, who goes to the bowling alley and you know, wants to bowl a great game, but he says, would you mind putting in the gutter bumpers? Because I don't want to take a chance of having a mistake. I need, the, I need that extra protection. I need that extra support, so help me out there. There are times that we pray prayers. We pray hard prayers. We pray prayers for our kids. We pray prayers for the people we love. And, you know, we pray prayers like, God, grow this person in character. And then a hard season comes and we go, well, I didn't mean that. I, I, I wanted it to be nice out. I didn't want it to be rainy. I didn't want it to be hard. Why is this hard thing happening? Why does this happen to happen? We pray for repentance. And then a, a difficult season comes and we're like, well, I wasn't really looking for that. I didn't want that to happen. We, change, we pray for a change of heart or a change of direction. But then we, we qualify it because we don't want it to be hard. We don't want it to have an impact on us. We don't want it to hurt the people around us. You see, here's the thing. Boot camp prayers don't come with, butter, with gutter bumpers. They don't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. If you're going to pray this kind of prayer, you've got to expect that it's going to be an intense season. Boot camp. You don't sign up for boot camp and say, well, I was really looking for the light version. You know? I'm, boot camp's boot camp. It's tough. It's hard. Prayers like the prayers Elijah prayed do not come easy. They come with an awareness that there's a price to be paid. And the price will be painful and the price will be personal. But we're willing to pray for it because we know it's the only way that someone else is going to wake up or that we might wake up, come to our spiritual senses and return to God. Elijah didn't know at this point how God would take care of him, but he prayed the prayer anyway. He prayed for the drought. He prayed that it would be brought on. Once the announcement is made, once he says this to Ahab, God does make clear how his provision is going to take place. Look at uh, verses 2 to 4. It says, Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook. 
near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. So here it is. Elijah's on his way to boot camp. He's signed up. He's got his mat, and he's on his way out into the wilderness. Here we go. He's headed to the brook. We see this pattern repeated again and again in the Bible. In the making of a godly man, in the making of a, of a godly woman, God sends them off to boot camp. He sends them to a place that is harsh, a place that is isolated, a place where they are alone, and a place where they can be broken. At the brook, at this spiritual boot camp, Elijah is cut off from human contact. There's no contact there. And he's going to be cut down to size. Now, here's the irony. The word kareth, or you can pronounce it kareth either way, it means to cut. It means to cut off. It means to cut down. This is literally a place where God is going to cut him off from people and he's going to cut him down to size. He's going to make him into the person that can be used for him, used in the mission that he has ahead. You know, I've already said, we don't know a lot about Elijah at this point. What we know is that he's a human. And that if he's a human, he probably has some character flaws. He has some rough edges that need to be polished down, broken off, so that he can be made into the man God desires. So while we don't know exactly what's going on in Elijah's character, what we can do is look at the tests he's brought through because the tests inform us about something God's trying to form in him. What is God taking him through? What, what's the process God's taking him through? So the first thing we see is that God takes him to a place of isolation. He takes him to a place that he's going to be alone. Go to the east and hide by Kareth Brook. Now, on the surface, this seems to make some sense. Jezebel's been killing prophets of Jehovah left and right, and so he needs to be protected from Jezebel. So go hide. Here's the thing that kind of, I struggle with that a little bit. Do you remember the story of Daniel and lion's den? Daniel's thrown in. Lions are incredibly hungry, and all night long they don't munch. Why, why does the Bible say it doesn't happen? God closed their mouths, Right? God closed the mouths of the lions. Do you not think that God could have said, Jezebel, you can do what you think, but you're not touching this guy. He is going to be completely protected. There's no way under the sun. God didn't have to send Elijah into hiding in order to be protected from Jezebel. So what's going on here? I really believe there's more going on than fear of hiding. There are two things. In a sense, when Elijah is absent... The word of the Lord is absent. When he leaves, the word of the Lord leaves. When he leaves, in a sense, the presence of God leaves. God is silent at this point. For years, he does not speak, except through the cracking ground, the dying crops, the drying up streams. He makes clear. He has spoken. You wandered from me? Watch the rain stop. And he really lets them do what they wanted to do, right? They're saying, we want to worship Baal. We want to worship this fertility God. We want to worship this God who can bring rain from the sky. Fine. Let's see how that works out for you. And Elijah leaves and he walks off into the, into the wilderness where he can't be found. And now God speaks through nature and just makes clear there's not going to be another word until Elijah shows up once again. There's another piece going on here, though, too. And that is God is using the isolation to shape Elijah's character. Think about this for a moment. What's the job of a prophet? Speaking. Declaring what's going on. So this drought begins, and I'm sure part of what Elijah wanted to do was wander the countryside and let people know why it was happening. He wanted to make clear, don't, don't be confused. This isn't just global warming. There's something going on here. He wants to make clear, God said it won't rain and it's not raining. And instead, God says, no, I just want you to go into hiding. We're going to let the drought speak for itself. I can imagine that that was a little bit of a struggle for a guy who wanted to spread the word. For a guy whose, whose job was to be a prophet and explain things to people. And instead, God says, no explanation necessary. We're just going to send you off for a while. Say nothing. Let the silence speak. And so Elijah was sent off. God did this over and over again to great men. Joseph, Moses, David, many others are driven off to a boot camp of isolation. A time far from the presence of people where God can break them down. And build them back up once again. 
in isolation while hiding, Elijah only had God. And he needed to start to embrace that fact. God is all he needs. We need that too, don't we? We need those moments that we realize God is truly all I need. If we're ever to grow into the person God wants us to be, uh, we're going to find ourselves from time to time wandering to the isolation of that brook called Kareth, a place where we are cut off and a place that we are cut down, lonely, in order to become the person that God desires. Now, we do know that while he's hiding at the brook, God provides water and he provides food. He gives both. It says that there will be drink from the brook, and he was to eat what the ravens bring him, for I have commanded them to bring him food. Now, I'm sure the brook made a lot of sense to Elijah. Uh, his hometown is just south of the brook. I'm sure he's been there before. He's got that place mapped out in his mind. But the other part, the other part is probably a, a little bit confusing. It's putting his senses to the test. Eat what the ravens bring you, for I've commanded them to bring you food. I spent some time reading about ravens this past week, just trying to understand them. I like birds. My oldest thinks I'm absolutely nuts. He already thinks I'm kind of some loony bird man that, you know, just likes to throw seeds out there and all that. They fascinate me. I love watching their patterns. I love figuring out how they work. I'm up to three hummingbird feeders in my backyard. And I do this for a reason. These hummingbirds, they're very territorial. So they'll go ahead and perch there next to the hummingbird feeder and wait for another one to show up. And the second he does, it's like Spitfires doing a battle in the sky. They're just all over the place. So I'm kind of confusing them a little bit, putting different ones around the yard. This time of year, I put out safflower seed in order to attract cardinals. It's the second year that we've had a nest of cardinals. It's been really cool to, to watch them come and nest in our yard. Put out some thistle for the finches. And, and then I, I put out some nuts for woodpeckers. I like to bring the woodpeckers in. Here's the problem. When you put out nuts, all the other stuff, we're doing good. You put out nuts. Now the birds show up that I think should lead the neighborhood, all right? starlings. I just can't stand those birds. They're just, they're like, they're the pigs of the bird world. You know, they show up, they're just flinging food all over the place. They don't eat nice and neat like a finch. No, they're just, their beak is going all over the place and they'll gobble the feeder gone in no time flat. And they bring along their friends, the blackbirds. Blackbirds are mean. You ever watch what blackbirds do to other birds? Pick them, poke them. They'll eat other birds' eggs. They'll eat other birds' babies. They're nasty. They're mean birds. So if you're at our house and a blackbird shows up, I'm not kidding, you'll hear it. Thump, thump on the window, thump on the window, thump on the window. And my, my birds are so well trained. The finches all stay. Everything else stays. They go, oh, blackbird, boom. And the blackbirds go away and everything else stays exactly where it's supposed to. It's just, it's absolutely amazing. Ah, weird. Anyway, so a raven is a kind of blackbird. It's in the crow family. It's the largest of the crow family. And we're told it's the smartest of all birds. There are people who believe it's smarter than a chimp. And we're told chimps are brilliant. You know, so, I mean, this is, this is a very smart bird. Scientists invent these games for them. They figure out the games. They figure this stuff out. They're really smart birds. Here's the other thing, though. They're scavengers. I mean, yeah, beautiful, huh? Thanksgiving, woo! They, they love to just, they eat rotting flesh. That's what they're all about. One site suggested that if you want to attract ravens to your yard, leave your garbage can lids off. That's the way to do it. They'll come a run and they just, they love garbage. They love rotting flesh. Ravens uh, have kind of an interesting biblical history. You remember it was a raven that Noah sent out of the window to find dry land. Little later, Moses says, uh, ravens are unclean. Don't eat them. Hmm, I wonder why. Hopping around on animal corpses all day long. Yeah, you probably don't want to be eating a raven. Later, uh, Jesus actually talks about ravens. He says, look at the ravens. We always talk about the sparrows, right? Because we like the sparrows. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than any birds. God speaks into the ear of this bird, a bird that he has declared unclean. And every day, morning and night, these birds show up and they drop bread and they drop meat in order for Elijah to go ahead and hand, have a meal. He receives a meal from the most unlikely source. And God is teaching Elijah something here. He's molding his heart, teaching him to be willing to expect, accept God's supply from the most unlikely source. 
He's saying, I've given it to you. And I'll tell you what, I think this probably challenged Elijah a little bit because Elijah had a pretty good image of what he thought God looked like. He had him all figured out. You don't have God all figured out, right? Oh, we're good at this. We, we've got our God all figured out, all the pieces. And then he does something. We go, well, you're not supposed to do that. That's not the way you work. And God says, really? I'm God. You're not. You're clay. I made you. Learn. That, I mean, he's teaching him. He's teaching him. Hey, if I said a raven's going to feed you, don't call it unclean. Eat what the raven brings you. Overall, I believe God is teaching Elijah the same lesson. He's teaching all of us all the time, and that is simply this. You can trust me. What a hard lesson to learn. You can trust me. At the end of these three and a half years, God is going to tell Elijah to call down fire from heaven in front of a crowd of people. And I'll tell you what, you've got to have some spiritual guts to stand in front of a crowd of people and call down fire from heaven, something so outrageous, so overt. And the only way you're going to do that is if you have developed deep, deep trust in God, knowing that God can be trusted. For three and a half years, God will tell Elijah, you can trust me. You can trust me. And interestingly, I think Elijah learned the lesson. He gets it. You know how I know? Look at verse 5. So Elijah did as the Lord told him. That's how you know if you trust not, not in theory, I believe in God. God said, do this. He said, all right. Elijah did as the Lord told him, headed off to the brook, did exactly what he was told. Elijah followed God's instructions to the T. Unlike Ahab, who's just breaking his rules left and right. He didn't argue. He didn't say, man, I'd rather stay at home. Couldn't you just throw down some manna? You've done it before. Why don't, why don't you do that again? He didn't argue about it. You know, he didn't modify. Kareth, really? I mean, I have a better place. I'm going to go straight over to the Jordan River. That thing's never going to dry up. He didn't turn up his nose. Ravens, ravens, unclean animals. I can't eat meat from an unclean bird. He didn't do that. I love what one commentator said. He said, he asked the question, what kind of meat would a raven bring? Don't ask. Just cook it well and eat it up. I mean, you don't want to know what it is. Just cook it and eat it up. In all of this, Elijah is learning to trust God for daily bread. Not next week, not next month, not next year. He didn't have a stockpile, just daily bread, daily meat. Give me what I need right now. And in all of this, God is saying, you can trust me. You can trust me. Now, here's what happens in verse 7. Boot camp intensifies. Boot camp always intensifies. Why can't it always be like day one? Boot camp intensifies. It says, after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. The brook dried up. Talk about a place of testing. God says, you can trust me. But the brook dried up. Have you been there? Maybe you're there right now. Right now, you are looking out and all you see is stones. Where there used to be water, it is just absolutely dry. You're going, you've gone through this season where God was, God was supplying daily just enough. And you felt like you were really getting it on this trust thing. You were, you were really, yes, I know I can trust God. But then the brook dried up. Boom, the water was gone. Your job seemed to be going along so well. And then you're called into the boss's office and, it's over. Uh, you, you finally got on top of the bills. You finally got that last credit card paid off. And then you go through some health thing that all of a sudden, boom, their back in the stack is twice as high as it was before. You thought you found a person you could trust, really trust. You, you were vulnerable. You were transparent. You were moving past, uh, oh, beyond past hurts, deep hurts. And then they betrayed you or they abandoned you. The brook dried up. Can you trust God when the brook dries up? I would contend that if we can't trust him when the brook dries up, we don't trust him at all. It's when the brook dries up that we really find out whether or not we honestly trust God. God is driving Elijah to levels of trust that he never thought possible. So we started out by teasing Bob. I love Bob's boot camp. Um, and you got to do it next time it's offered. I mean, you, you just have a lot of fun, okay? I love the first night or two. 
Because we get in there and we're, we're doing jumping jacks, you know, we're doing some planks, we're, we're maybe doing a mountain climber, and everybody is just panting and wheezing and staring at the door. It, it's, like, it's like people are ready to bolt. I just got to get out of here. You know, ah, it's driving me nuts. But you know what? In a few weeks, you look around the room, and the thing that was so hard the first night, piece of cake. We're just plowing through those jumping jacks. Everything's looking great. So what does he do? He adds something new. And there we are, panting and wheezing and eyeballing the door. But then we master that one. We're doing pretty good. And then what does he do? An accumulator. And the room groans. It just groans. And I promise you, no matter how many times you do that, it gets easier, but it never gets easy. It's just, it's just nasty bad. And it goes on and on and on and on. Every time we grow, the intensity has to ratchet up. You don't get to stay at night one and grow. It's got to get more intense. And the same is true for your spiritual life. You know, you can spend your life singing Sunday school songs and believing me that, that believing that's what your spirituality is all about. But there comes a time that God wants to ratchet up the intensity because he wants to grow you more. He wants to grow you deeper. And just when you find yourself saying, yes, I can trust you, the brook dries up. And, you know, you got to be kidding me. Really? An accumulator? Now? I don't want to do this. But do you trust God enough to believe that even when the brook is dried up, he is worthy of our trust? A dried up brook is not a sign of God's punishment. That's the way we think, right? What did I do wrong, God? What did I do to deserve this? Why me? Why do I have to go through this? A more, fundam- a more fundamental question that might be better than what did I do wrong is, God, who do you want me to become? Or God, as I'm staring at this dried up brook, the water stopped flowing and I am thirsty. What is it I'm supposed to learn about you right now that I would not learn if the brook had never dried up? You can trust me even when the brook dries up. No matter what, you can trust me, God says, even when the brook dries up. Elijah, is, is, his camp is not done. We're going to look at part two of camp next week, where he learns what he's supposed to be all about when he's staring at that dried up brook. What I'd like to do in this moment is just think about these lessons for ourselves. One of these three probably applies to you today. Maybe all three to different degrees. In loneliness... Elijah learned that God is all he needs. Are you going through a season of isolation right now? And you've been wondering why in the world you have to go through this? And God's saying, when are you going to get it? I'm it. All that other stuff, all those other people, they're nice, but I'm it. Are you going through a season of isolation where God is trying to get you to say, you're all I need? Through the ravens, he learned to accept God's supply from an unlikely source. Are you willing to accept God's supply from where it comes and not from where you want it to come? I just feel for people who are going through unemployment in particular. You know, their friends will come alongside, they'll, they'll give them financial help, they'll do those things. And I know what the person says. They say, I don't want this, I just want a job. I, I want to be able to provide for my own needs. I don't want to accept someone else's help. And God's saying, would you just accept from the raven I've sent at this moment and learn to accept my supply from an unlikely source? Are you willing to do that? Maybe your brook is dried up. And he's saying, do you still trust me? You said you did. You sing about it. Do you really trust me? Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, I'm glad boot camp isn't all the time. I'm glad it's seasons and not nonstop. But we welcome these seasons, God. We really do because we know they grow us into who you desire. We should welcome them. I pray that we will. I pray that we will learn the lessons you're trying to teach us in this moment. Help us to embrace you as the only one that we need. Help us to accept gifts from unlikely sources, even even unclean ravens. Help us, God, staring at that dried up brook to say, hey, you supplied before, you'll supply again.
I trust you. I trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take communion now. God's supply for us. The bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, who came and died so that we could have eternal life. Fresh start, new beginning, so that you'd have the power today to live the kind of life that God desires. The bread and cup will come to you. And why don't you just take these moments while we're listening to a song to think about the questions that we just talked about. Maybe it's just wrestling with God enough this morning to say, God, I'm willing to trust. I'm willing to accept your supply. I'm willing to embrace you today as all I need. Go ahead and have that conversation with him. And when you're ready, uh, take the bread, take the cup. We won't wait and do it together at the end. Just go ahead and take it when you're ready.
We need that newness today, God. We, we need you to uh, make us into the person you desire. And we realize that that often involves a season that is incredibly undesirable. One that we would resist, one that we would never choose to go through, never choose to sign up for. And yet, God, you take us there to bring us out on the other side, a changed person. I pray that we would be willing to subject ourselves to your transforming work and your transforming power to not fight you and not resist you, not argue with you when the brook dries up, but to simply trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our servers are going to come and receive the offering. Go ahead and put your card in there as you do. I want to show you some update pictures from the past week. Had a little rain this week, and yet they were really able to plow along on some things. You start to see some windows, the window areas appearing, and that's that uh, couch area that we'll be gathering with uh, uh, small groups and that sort of thing. I think the next one's giving you an idea of, yes, we have curbs. If you drive by slowly enough, you start to see that parking lot taking shape which is really just amazing looking. And, and from a distance, it gives you an idea. Walls are going up. We've got some roof going on. Just a lot of things happening right now. And glad we went over and did our visit when we did because now they're starting to put electric lines underneath and conduit and all kinds of other stuff. It would made it really kind of difficult to walk over there right now. So our visit was well-timed. But uh, go ahead and drive by today. Check it out. See what's happening. Just It's incredibly exciting to continue to watch the progress that is taking place there. One other thing I want to share with you, I wanted to talk about it a little bit more last week and we ran out of time and look, we did it again. So anyway, I've got to tell you anyway, um, we are during the summer not offering coffee. And I know some of you, I saw the picketers out front this morning and the whole works and the blow up rat holding his cup of coffee. I got it. I got all that. I know. I know. Anyway, um, <clears throat> why are we not doing coffee? This is really simple. Uh, one of the, I talked a couple weeks about, ago about habits we've developed while we've been here that we've got to break. And one of the habits we're in right now is Sunday morning's about a lot of work. Set up the chair, dare down the chair, get the screen up, get the coffee made, get this done, get that done, all these jobs. And you know what happens in the process of doing all those jobs? We don't always get a chance to talk to people that we're not doing that job with all the time. So the two people that do the screens, they know each other very well. But, but do they know other people? And here's what I've watched. I've been watching this for months. I mean, it is predictable as the day is long that we'll walk in and everybody kind of goes to their same spot in the hallway, stands with the same person, having the same conversation, and having the same people walk by them while it's going on. And so we thought this summer we'd shake it up a little bit. It's kind of fun. Uh, not many people using this door. They're all using this door. I looked this morning. There were people standing in the wrong spot today. Their hands were kind of shaky. They didn't know what to do with that. Where's my friend? Where's my spot? But, you know, it helps us because we got to get broken out of our routine sometimes. And I know when we have these conversations, sometimes they're like, well, all you care about is new people. No, there are some people that have been attending for four years that you've not met yet. There are people that have been here for a while that come in and leave every week and don't have a conversation because we're all in our conversation. And on top of that, we have some people that do a great job every week setting up and tearing down coffee, and they don't get to be involved in the conversations, and they're some of our best conversationalists. So that's why we're not doing coffee, okay? That's why your little caffeine brook dried up. (laughs) But... Take your carrot for what it's worth and grow, all right? So with that, I want to leave you with a good thought. Let's stand and sing. Go. Higher than the mountains that I face. Stronger than the power of the grave. Constant through the trial and the change.
Sunday. He didn't want me to say this, but I'm going to embarrass him anyway because it's what I do. So it's his last Sunday before he goes and studies abroad, and then he'll be back for Christmas. So give him a big hug when you leave. Thanks for playing the guitar for us, Tom. All right. Have a great Sunday, everybody. So 